The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study tonight. Father, we thank you for the time that we're going to have now to study your word. And as we've been moving through systematic theology, we realize just how deep uh, the Bible is topically, Lord. There's just so many topics that are worthy of our consideration. And as we've been discussing recently prayer, we could go on tonight with good effect and spend more time on prayer. But Lord, as we turn our attention to learning about angels tonight, I pray that you would teach us. Help me, O Lord, guard me from error and open our hearts, Lord. <clears throat> that we would understand the doctrine of angels as it's laid out for us in the Bible, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you all get a handout on angels? All right. Tonight we're going to be talking about angels. What are angels? Why did God create them? What does the Bible teach us about angels? Realize that, again, in, the, in, the systematic, in systematic theology, we are going through the Bible topically. This is the very thing I don't do on Sunday mornings. I don't preach Topically. I preach books of the Bible passage by passage. But there's still a value and a benefit to trying to go through and, and collect everything or most everything that we could see that the Bible says uh, on a given topic. And angels is the topic that we're looking at tonight. First of all, what are angels? Grudem gives us this definition. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence but without physical bodies. That's a definition. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence but without physical bodies. First of all, they are created spiritual beings. What that means is that there was a time that angels did not exist. They are not uh, timeless or eternal the way God is. Sorry, guys. I've got, I've got a master right here. You can take this one. It's not stapled. If you want to run off some more how many, how many people need a handout? Did, you, did everybody get one? Okay, yeah. Maybe do another 15 or so. Just be sure we have enough. Yeah. So bring some more. Thank you, Roger. All right, so there, there was a time that angels didn't exist. Okay? Everything has been created except God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing, Father, Son, and Spirit. But angels were created. They have not always existed. At one point, God created them. In Nehemiah 9.6, it says, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So God created the heavens with their host. Now, the word host means like an army. It refers to the angelic host, the hosts of heaven. God created the angels. Psalm 148, verse 2 and 5 says, Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Do you see that? So there's actually a list of things in there in the intervening verses that I left out with the ellipsis there, but the angels are included in those things that should praise God because uh, He created them. They were created beings. And then clearly it says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Just stop right there. Things in heaven. Well, what is that? Well, it would include angels. It would include these spiritual beings that we're talking about here. Heavenly beings. 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Again, physical things, those are visible. Invisible things, those are spiritual beings. God created them. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. The him in that sentence is Jesus Christ. And so through Christ were all the angels created. Christ is the creator of the angels. That's an amazing thing when you stop and think about it because in Christ's life, physical life, they ministered to him. They were in the position of power. They had the resources. And Jesus was the weak one. Can you think of a time that I'm referring to where Jesus was weak? And the, After 40 days of fasting, he was weak. And the book of Luke says that the angels came and ministered to him. Another time I have in mind. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and great drops of blood fell from him and God sent angels to strengthen him and minister to him so that he would have the ability to get up and go to the cross. But the angels were there. and so. But at one point, he spoke and they were created. He was their creator, the mighty one, uh, Jesus Christ. All right, so angels are created beings. They're created spiritual beings. Secondly, it says they exercise moral judgment. We see this clear, clearest in the fact that some of them fell. They rebelled against God and fell. Uh, and that would be a whole other topic is the fallen angels, which are also known as what? Demons, that's right. So the fact that, that angels had the ability to rebel and fall means that they are moral beings. They understand right from wrong. Um, the angel giving revelation to John stopped John from worshiping him. You remember that? The angel was giving him the revelation and, and uh, John twice, I believe, in the book of Revelation goes to worship him. And the angel stops him and says, don't do it, I'm just a fellow servant with you. Worship God. And so he knows it's wrong to receive worship and would never do it. Uh, they're moral beings. They exercise moral judgment. They have high intelligence. They're given complex tasks, tasks of communication by God. Uh, they have an intelligence. They have ability to carry on a discourse, a conversation. You know, to go back and forth, for example. Uh, you remember the exchange between Zechariah and the angel Gabriel, for example. You remember that. When uh, Zechariah is offering sacrifice or incense, burning incense before the Lord, and God sends Gabriel to tell him that his wife Elizabeth is going to be with child, and he doesn't believe it. And he says, how can this be? We're so, you know, she's beyond age. And, and he says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. I mean, isn't that enough? I mean, I don't come to, to, to tell you a joke. You know, this is not, not kind of jesting with you here. This is really going to happen, all right? And because you didn't believe me, you will not be able to speak until it happens. So there's an exchange there, and apparently God had given him the authority. He said, by the way, Gabriel, he's not going to believe you. And when he says this, then you strike him dumb. Um, but he, there, he clearly has intelligence, the ability to carry on a conversation, uh, some give and take there. And uh, definitely they exchange in a very high level of worship constantly. You can't worship if you don't have a mind. Uh, obviously, it's, it, there's a certain amount of intelligence that goes into angelic worship. And they are spirits. They are spirits, and this implies that ordinarily they have no bodies. Now, we say ordinarily because there are some times in Scripture where they seem to take on bodies and seem to be able to do physical things. And I say seem because that's the way the account is written. It's difficult to, uh, to know how it works. But um, in Hebrews 1.14, it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So they are spirits. 
uh, Jesus points this fact up about spirits in Luke 24:39. He says, look at my hands and my feet. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So a spiritual being does not have a physical body, doesn't have a circulatory system, a nervous system, a musculature system or, or skeleton. The, all right, so angels are spiritual. However, in their ordinary job of protecting and serving us, they are invisible. However, sometimes angels seem to take on bodies and even to be able to eat. All right, uh, Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Do you, do you, can you think of what that would refer to? Abraham, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some people take it to mean something not even in the Bible, but this is a regular occurrence where we're entertaining angels without knowing it, like Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Does anybody know who Clarence Oddbody is? It's a Wonderful Life. Can you explain something about that? What does the S stand for? He says, I'm angel second class, AS2. So I asked Jenny. She said it stands for second. I said, then what does the two stand for? So I'm just totally confused about Clarence Oddbody. But at any rate, um, Clarence Oddbody was a human being who eventually you know, became an angel but hadn't earned his wings yet. You remember that whole thing? It's incredible the bizarre concepts there are about angels out there. Incredible the, the different websites there are about angels. I've been to some of them today. And they give me the willies, absolutely. They're, a lot of them are coming from Southern California. Nothing against Southern California, but I mean, just interesting concepts about angels and different things. We'll get to that in a moment. But at any rate, um, yeah, angels uh, do not earn their wings. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it just, it's weird. But there are some times, it seems in the Bible, they take on human bodies, all right? Some have entertained angels without knowing it. That account in Sodom and Gomorrah. There are other names for angels. For example, sons of God. Uh, in Job uh, 1.6 and 2.1, this is B'nai Elohim in the Hebrew. And so uh, it says that the, that the sons of God were presenting themselves before God. And again in 2.1. Uh, also, they're called the holy ones in Psalm 89, 5 and 7. They're called spirits, as we just read in Hebrews 1.14. They're called watchers. In Daniel 4, 13, 17, and 23. They're called thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities in Colossians 1, 16, and powers in Ephesians 1, 21. There's a variety of names. Then there are other kinds of heavenly beings which themselves might be angels. Realize that the word angel is just an English transliteration of the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. Messenger. Angelos means messenger. Uh, in Greek, the prefix EU means good, like eugenics, for example. Um, euangelion is the good message. And we get the English word evangelize from that. So the word angel is right in the word evangelize, as you've noticed. It means a messenger. And that's what angel means. Angel is a messenger. So, you know, I don't know if these other heavenly beings would be classified as angels. Do they have messages to, to bear, I don't know, but they are spiritual beings. Um, for example, the cherubim. Um, in Genesis 3.24, after he drove the man, Adam, out, uh, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So here, the cherubim um, are given a guardian role, a role 
of preventing Adam from coming back into the Garden of Eden. Basically, you're not getting in through here. Uh, the angel's like a warrior here with a sword, a flaming sword. Cherubim, actually, the ending is plural in the Hebrew, so there's a sense of cherub might be a singular. Cherubim would be several of these heavenly beings who are given the job of guarding, uh, guardianship or guarding uh, the way back into the garden. He's not getting in. There's no way he's going to be able to pass through these warriors. Also, in Exodus 25, 17 and following, uh, Moses is commanded, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one side and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put the ark in the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So this is very important. This is the atonement seat. This is the place where the blood of the atoning sacrifice of Leviticus 16 and other places in the law of Moses is poured. This is the place of atonement. And there the glory of God would hover at times and there would be a, a sense that he was there. That was the place he would meet with Israel between the two cherubim. I think, parenthetically, that's the significance of John's uh, statement in Jesus' resurrection at the tomb. There are two angels uh, where Jesus' body had lay, one at the head, the other at the foot. And there between them I will meet with you. The, the resurrected body of Christ. Isn't that incredible? Jesus' body, the new and living way for us into the very presence of God. Everything in John's gospel has a purpose. Let me tell you, there's no, nothing extra in there. And so when John says that the, one of the angels was at the head and the other at the foot, you have to wonder, is there a connection back to the atonement cover here? I think there is. And so this is the new covenant place of meeting God, the resurrected body of Christ. So that's cherubim. Or uh, Psalm 18.10, speaking of God and His wrath against David's enemies, powerful and strong, God mounts these cherubim and he flew, he soared on the wings of the wind. So the cherubim uh, are like his chariots and they just bring him down in wrath to take on David's enemies. Now the origin of the word cherubim, uh, cherubim as I mentioned is a Hebrew masculine plural, is a word borrowed from the Assyrian kiribu or kirabu which means to be near. Hence it means those that are near to God, near ones or familiar uh, personal servants. Just like Gabriel said, remember, I stand in the presence of God. There's a sense of proximity, very close to God. Um, they are familiar to him, personal servants, bodyguards, as it were, courtiers. It was commonly used of heavenly spirits who surround the majesty of God and paid him intimate service. Now, there's an interesting question in that Exodus 25. There's a command that God gives Moses, which we would not be able to carry out today. He says, make cherubim. Well, how would you begin if you're an artist? Well, what's the problem? We don't have the first idea what one... Oh, yes, I do. I've been to the Sistine Chapel. I know what they look like. We'll get to that later on. I have a lot to say about artistic angels, and none of it is positive. Okay, none of it. Not a single positive word about angels in art. We'll get to it later. 
you actually have some samples later on, but don't turn in your pages. We'll get there in due time. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, all right, these are artistic angels, aren't they? Commanded, specifically commanded. How could Moses do it and we can't? Because he had seen the vision. He had a vision of the heavenly tabernacle, didn't he? He had made the tabernacle according to the pattern that he had seen. I think he saw the cherubim. Therefore, he could, he could describe what they look like and obey this command, namely to make cherubim out of gold and put them on the atonement cover. But Josephus says he also dedicated for the most secret place whose breadth was 20 cubits and length the same two cherubims of solid gold but no one can tell or even conjecture what was the shape of these cherubims. So he had no idea. This is Josephus, you know, a long time ago, around the, a little after the time of Christ. Nobody knows what cherubims, they didn't know. By the way, cherubims is an odd thing. The English translator made it really a double plural. The I-M ending is already plural. You don't need to say it. It's kind of like Acts seminars. The S is already seminar, so, uh, you know, at any rate. The fact of the matter is cherubim is plural. That's one type. The second is seraphim. Now, the word in the Hebrew, seraph, the, the Hebrew verb seraph means to burn. And frequently with angels, we get a sense of burning, don't we? A sense of the burning brightness, um, a sense of lightning and light and brilliance and glory. Isn't that true? I mean, almost every time angels appear, there's a sense of blinding light, like the glory of the Lord shone around and they were terrified the night of Jesus' birth. Or, you know, Daniel's, the appearance of Daniel is one of, of brightness or the angel that rolled back Jesus' stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as the light. So there's this blinding brilliance. We'll talk more about that later. But seraphim, mean, the I am ending is plural, burning ones is what it literally means burning with the glory of God. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The next verse says, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook and the temple was filled with smoke. It's not at the sound of God's voice. It's the Sarah's voice that caused the whole place to shake like an earthquake. These are powerful beings. And strange looking too because they have the six wings, not just two wings, as they're commonly depicted in those artistic angels I mentioned a moment ago. These had six wings. Four of the six wings are dedicated to worship, aren't they? Two wings they're using to cover their face. And two, they're covering their feet. Take off your sandals, he said to Moses, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. There's a sense of the covering of the feet. I'm in the presence of God. And they can't get over the holiness of God. They just talk about it all the time. And they're covering their faces. They can't even be in the presence of God. He's so holy. That's why when Moses said, show me your glory, it's just you don't understand what you're asking. The seraphim can't handle it. And so, you know, you would be incinerated really by my glory. There's no way you could handle a full display of my glory. But the angels can't handle either and they're covering their faces. And with two, they're flying. They're moving around to minister. 
Uh, one of the seraph takes a live coal with tongs from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips to purify them. So they're serving, they're ministering, but they're in the presence of God and they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. It's a terrifying thing when you think about it. And in, the, in evangelism, we need to keep in mind this great holiness of God and tremble with fear when non-Christians say they'll take their chances on Judgment Day. It's just a terrifying thing. Do you see how much we need the blood of Jesus Christ? There's no hope. These seraphim are powerful beings and they won't even look at God. They won't even look, but they're calling to one another. Well, why are they calling to each other? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Why do they say that to each other? What do you think? Why are they communicating about God's holiness to each other? What do you think? Are we too big for an inductive Bible study? I guess we kind of are, aren't we? Yeah. Well, maybe in some sense they experience God more fully by relating to one another just as we do in the church. Yeah. There's something about our nature as relational beings that we've got to share it. We can't keep it to ourselves. The word hallelujah is an imperative. We're communicating to each other, translated, praise the Lord. So we're saying somebody, we're saying to another created being, praise the Lord. We're talking to each other. We just can't get over it. The angels can't either. They're just in awe of God and they're there all the time. And they're calling to each other, oh, the holiness of God. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? This is incredible. And they're just in awe. These are the seraphim. Then third, we've got the living creatures. Now, these are strange. But you know something? If you look at what God's created physically, He creates strange things, doesn't He? If you look at biological textbooks or some of these, there are just creatures that I wouldn't have made if I were God, you know? And I know that you feel, some of you, the same way when you see them in your crawl spaces or whatever. You're wondering, why would God want to make something that looked like that? It's strange. But in the spiritual realm, there are also these living creatures and they almost defy description, don't they? You get the sense that there's almost a kind of a metaphorical or spiritual significance, allegorical description. But, it, but Ezekiel, for example, when he's describing them, you know, he, he, it's like language is straining to break. This is what he says. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings. And their, their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. You know, it's interesting, that whole description, you've read it, I'm sure, in Ezekiel 1, you get the feeling that language is stretched to the breaking point to describe the vision he has. Because these are moving. You remember there's wheels within the wheels and the spirit of the living creatures is in the wheels and they move without turning and each of them goes in a direction without touching the ground. And it's, I don't get it. You know, you read, have you ever read that? And it's like, I don't understand. You're trying to get it. And then above them, there is this expanse 
like sapphire or something. And this awesome expanse, the same word rakia in the Hebrew, that it, you know, it speaks of the expanse in, uh, in uh, Genesis 1 when he creates the universe. And there's this expanse that separates the waters above from the waters below. So here's this expanse. And above, high above the expanse, is a throne, brilliant. And sitting above on the throne was an image like a man. And then at the end of Ezekiel 1, he says, and this is what I saw of the image of the likeness of the glory of God. It's like he's taking two steps removed verbally to say this is just an image of the likeness I had of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell face down. And so here are these powerful living creatures and God is just so high above them. This is why I just don't understand the Jehovah's Witness view of God. I mean, because... The image you get of the holiness of God is that there is nothing in all creation like him. He's just so high above everything that he's made. Nothing is like him. There's no created being you could even compare to him. He's so holy. So who then is Jesus in their view? He's a created being who's just like God. It doesn't fit. There's too big a gap between creation and God. And so the Trinity must be true because... You can see what I'm saying. He's just so high and exalted above everything that he's made. And Jesus is a created being in the Jehovah's Witness theology. I don't understand this. But in this image in Ezekiel, he's just so high and exalted above these living creatures. But the living creatures are awesome, aren't they? There's a sense of power and a sense of mystery, too, as you look at them and you try to describe what they look like. Uh, John also has a similar vision in Revelation 4, 6 through 8. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an, uh, an ox. The third had the face like a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. Uh, each of the four living creatures had six wings. So these are different spiritual beings, it seems, than the one Ezekiel saw, which had four wings. And they're covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Ezekiel's had hands, human hands under the wings. So these are different, a different order of living creature. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So they're saying the same thing the seraphim are saying. The holiness of God. The holy, holy, holy God. They're worshiping him all the time. I can't imagine why people would say heaven would be a boring place lazily strumming on your harp for eternity. How dull could that be? They forget God. God is an immense, powerful, totally enthralling being for these living creatures. They just are constantly worshiping Him all the time. Okay, so these are different orders. Are they all angels? I don't know. I don't. An angel is a messenger. They're all spiritual beings that are described in the Bible. Now, there's a rank and an order among the angels we get this out of the term archangel, which is found twice in the Bible. In Jude 9, it refers to the archangel Michael. Michael is one of the two angels named in the Bible. The other, as I mentioned, was Gabriel. We'll get to that in a moment. But So the, we've got the archangel Michael. Now, the Greek prefix, ark, A-R-C-H, ark means ruler. That's what it means. And so an archangel is a ruler angel. What that implies is that there's a hierarchy in heaven in the heavenly realms. You know what I'm talking about. So there's an order. Michael is an archangel. First uh, Thessalonians 4.16 also says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, 
and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So we've got these ruler angels. There's an order and a structure. We also have the chief princes, Daniel 10:13. It says, uh, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Because Jude calls Michael an archangel, we have to assume chief prince means arch or archangel, ruler angel. So it's a fascinating passage in, in Daniel 10. As Daniel sets himself to pray and ask God about the future, he prays for 21 straight days. Incredible. Meanwhile, there's war going on in the heavenly realms and an angel is coming to try to get, his, get the message through and he can't make it because the Persian prince, a demon must be, won't let him through. And so they tussle for 21 days and nobody else can get away from their engagements to come help him until Michael finally comes and gets him through. And he says, no one else helps me against them except him. He's the only one. And here's your prince, Michael. That's what he says. So we've got this angelic messenger restrained by the prince of Persia. Michael, one of the chief princes, comes to help. One of the head or foremost of the princes or rulers. And then you've got these terms which you already mentioned, namely thrones, authorities, rulers, dominions, powers. There's a series of words in the Greek which gives you a sense of a total ordering and structuring in the heavenly realms. Archangel, just a hint, this gives a much more thorough um, vocabulary of structure. That's why I think it's so fascinating when the Roman centurion says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. What is he saying? Well, I'm a middle-level manager actually in the Roman army. I've got people way above me all the way up to the emperor and then I've got a hundred soldiers below me who do everything I say. So you're the emperor, uh, you're the king of the kingdom of heaven, just give the word and it'll be done. That's the kind of power you have. And Jesus says, exactly right. The heavenly realms are a well-ordered, structured kingdom and I'm in charge of the whole thing. You got it right. Yeah, go ahead. In um, the footnotes in my study Bible, um, they talk about thrones and principalities and powers being angelic beings in a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Where did they get that idea? Is it defined elsewhere in the Bible, I always kind of wondered. Well, I think this Colossians 1.16 would be one of the strongest well, verses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it so says, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, okay. whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Here there's no indication that they're evil. Same thing in Ephesians 1 when it says that he gave Jesus the name that is higher than every other name and set him above all authority and power so high and above, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does he mean by that? He's saying, I'm in charge of every throne, ruler, authority, power. And that means demonic too. Their thrones and powers, they just use them badly. They use them wrongly. This is the whole thing. God sets up lower level created beings who have dominion and rule. And he upholds their right to rule, but then holds them accountable for what they do with it. That's how God works. That's why he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, rather than just taking the people. He is establishing and upholding the order that he's created. That's why rebellion and lawlessness is so wicked. It's an overthrowing of an ordering and a structuring that God has set up. And Jesus is the head over it all. He rules over every authority and power. And that's why the demons are terrified of Jesus. He has absolute power over them and they know it. He can do anything he wants with them anytime. There would be no tussle, no wrestling between Michael and the prince of Persia. There's no wrestling. Jesus says, go, and they go. And there's nothing else. And they know it. He has that kind of power. 
what is the definition of principalities? Then it must fall somewhere within what's given here. In yeah. Well, these are English words. Principality is an English word, and you get the sense of of the um, medieval, you know, middle medieval ages, the uh, in which there were fiefdoms and dukes and duchies, and there were princes, and there was just an ordering in the medieval world from the emperor through kings to princes and dukes and duchesses, right on down to serfs. There was just a hierarchical structure, and there's a pattern here. Uh, they're Greek words, and then the English translation would bring over into the you know, like William Tyndale, who translated uh, ultimately King James, most of it was his words, would use a term like principality because that was something the English people would understand. It was a middle-level ruler, somebody not the king but below it. Okay? So there's this rank and order among the angels. You know, there's more in the heavenly realms than we knew about. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of things going on around us all the time. And to think that Jesus is the name above every name, that he's... I mean, the most powerful angel who would just... I, I mean, the, the power of angels, we'll get to it in a minute, but, you know, and that he would fall on his face before Jesus. We just don't realize the power Jesus has and how much he lowered himself to die on the cross. All right, names of specific angels. What are the two names? You know what they are. There's only two. Balthazar and Melchior. Very good. Okay, no, no, that is not true. Michael, the archangel, chief prince for Israel, and then certainly Gabriel, who is a messenger coming to Daniel and Daniel 8, also Elizabeth and uh, Mary in Luke 1. So those are the only two named angels. How many of you have read Frank Peretti's books? How many names does he give out? Many. <laughs> okay. And he, he goes way beyond because then he's got races of angels. You know, you've got African princes and the, the, the Asian Oriental angels and all that. Very speculative. Okay. Very, very speculative. All out of, I believe, the Daniel verses. Um, so going way, way beyond. But it makes very entertaining reading um, as you're talking about that. I don't know that it's biblical. There's a great deal of speculation about angels, a great deal of interest in angels. Some of it's unhealthy, I think. Uh, be careful about that. Um, and also, we talked last week about prayer. There's a connection between Frank Brady. You know, uh, as we pray, the angels get stronger. It's almost like we've given them their their boost, their vitamin C for the day. But when we don't pray, their their wings droop a little bit, and they're not as strong in their battle. Do you, have you sensed that with Brady's books? And so it's really there's an energizing going from our prayers through the angels in their struggles. That is so far beyond what the Bible says that it just makes me scared. I, it's not what I get out of the doctrines of prayer and of the angels. I do think it's interesting, though, that God lets the angels and demons fight it out. I mean, he is the million-pound weight that if he goes on either side of the scale, he wins. And he just lets the angels struggle with it. You know what I'm saying? He just lets them kind of win, kind of lose, kind of advance, kind of all the time. 21 days it took that angel to get through. If God wanted him through in a minute, it would have, that's it. He goes. You know, and so God lets the angels struggle the way we struggle in some ways. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if he wants to end it, he can end it. And he's choosing to just let the angels fight it out. There's war in the heavenly realms. But he can pull the plug on the thing the whole time, anytime he wants to. Now, angels can only occupy one place at one time. Here, we're getting into a scholastic debate. Have you ever heard of scholasticism? It was the Middle Ages in which uh, scholastic theologians were debating such questions as how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? Did you think we were going to talk about that tonight? What is the answer? How many angels can fit on the head of a pin? Well, I would want to know as an engineer how big the pin head is. I mean, we can't really begin answering this until... There are different size pin heads, aren't there? Some of them are the plastic round ball 
types, and then there are the flat kind of standard ones. So you can't even answer these questions until you get a standardized pinhead. So once we get the standardized pinhead, then we'll be able to debate the question. All right, so we'll come back to that. You engineering-minded people can give me a study on pinheads, then we can answer the question. But uh, the fact of the matter is, because angels must travel in order to get where they can minister, that's implied by the wings, isn't it? The wings imply travel, don't they? Okay, you have wings so that you can move from place to place. Swiftly, yes, but still, you angels are not omnipresent. They're here or they're there. And so they move. Um, it implies they can only uh, minister at one place at one time. And so again, the story in Daniel, a great insight. Then he, the angel, continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian king kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So here's the angel. He's coming to bring a message and he's got to travel to do it. He can't finish making the journey because the other angel or the, de the demon, the prince of Persia, uh, stops him. Okay? So angels can only be one place at one time. That kind of gives you a comfort though when it comes to demons, doesn't it? I mean, Satan is not uh, omnipresent. He also can only be one place at one time. Um, Evie Hill is. <laughs> I remember hearing this story. Evie Hill is a, a black Presbyterian minister, just a godly man, great, great preacher. Uh, a, a woman came up to him after service once and uh, said, uh, "Pastor, I think the devil's after me." Said, "Woman, you ain't done nothing to get the devil after you." <laughs> What's he saying? You don't merit the attention of the devil. You're not at that level yet. Now Jesus, he merited the direct attention of the devil. All right. Judas was, de was not demon-possessed. He was Satan-possessed. But we, we uh, ain't done nothing to merit the devil's attention yet. We're not important enough yet. But we do have demons, I think, that are assigned to harass us and to tempt us. And, to, and uh, as we grow in holiness, we'll probably rise up the ranks of the demons. I don't really know. But uh, uh, that's C.S. Lewis dealing with that whole issue of temptation. But the fact of the matter is there's limits then to what the demons can do. There's limits to what Satan can do. But in one sense, we are wrestling with Satan because his kingdom is integrated. And so when we fight a demon, we're really fight, fighting also the head, which is Satan himself. All right, how many angels are there? Well, lots, myriads. I mean, you get the sense in which, I mean, and, and there is biblical information on this. Uh, many, many angels. For example, Deuteronomy 33.2 says, um, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. So 10,000 there. But then in Psalm 68:17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. So now we get a sense that there's really just, we really almost can't number them. There's tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. So I, I guess at that point, you don't do the multiplication. You realize this is a round figure to say that there are just lots and lots of angels that he created. The Lord has come from Sinai into a sanctuary. The King James Version of Hebrews 12.22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. I mean, that's where you come. That's what heaven is. It's a place where you, could not, you couldn't number the angels. 
Jude 14, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. One of the most fascinating verses in the New Testament is Jude 14. Because here's this guy, Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesying the second coming of Christ with angels. Seventh from Adam, and he's talking about the end of the world. How did he know? Well, how do we know? The spirit of prophecy. And God told Enoch some things that uh, he didn't tell just anybody. Enoch walked with God and God took him, not by death, but just took him into his presence. And so Enoch was privy to some information that most of us wouldn't be. And so he says, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. When Jesus comes back, he's coming with an angelic army, numbering thousands of thousands of angels. Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. What do you think that must have looked like? Imagine kind of like standing up on a, a, a hill or a mountain and looking down across this valley and there's this throne and he, just angels, more than you could count, worshiping God. Just, you know, a vision of that and you can't put it into words and it's just immense. Thousands and thousands. No sense in doing the math. The idea is that there are countless numbers of angels. Do people have individual guardian angels? Well, do they? <laughs> yes? No? Evidence for this concept is shaky at best. All right, why do I say that? First of all, we would not know about guardian angels if it weren't for the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you see? And movies like that come along and teach us. No, we're not going to get information about... <laughs> Bob, you're laughing. You're not going to get information from Hollywood. <laughs> we're going to get it from Scripture. What scripture would you bring forward to say that there are guardian angels? By this we mean an angel assigned to you your whole life. All right, there's only one that I can think of. Um, angels are sent to protect us, but Psalm 91, 11, and 12 doesn't say we have guardian angels. It says that angels guard us. But we don't know it's the same angel the whole time. We have angels who guard us, but we may not have guardian angels. Do you see what I'm saying? Psalm 91, 11, and 12 says, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you up in all your ways. They will lift you up in, your hand, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I mean, it'd be really wonderful to see all the times that angels have done that for you. I mean, it's really amazing. And any, anybody who's parents of toddlers can recognize how much we rely on the intervention of God to protect us. I remember a story um, from Japan when uh, we were cleaning up and we left the door propped open and Jenny went across the street um, and uh, she was standing there on the other side of the street and the street wasn't that busy but it was busy enough and uh, I remember you know Christy and I were, we didn't know where she was and, and you know then we saw her and we had trained our kids to come when called so she knew that she shouldn't be outside the door and as soon as she saw me she started to come, to cross back across the street toward me. Meanwhile, I saw a car coming. She's coming from between two parked cars. No chance that the driver would ever see. And for some reason, the driver stopped and didn't get out or whatever, just stopped. And then Jenny came out. And I don't think he saw me because we had a carport. I was deep in the carport. I don't think he could have seen me. Something made that, that driver stop. And, uh, I, you know, Psalm 91, 11, and 12 must be fulfilled practically from time to time. In other words, that angels are sent to save our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, he protects us. But is one a saint angel 
<coughs> assigned to us for life. Well, Matthew 18.10 says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels, possessive, in heaven, always see the face of my Father in heaven. There it is. That's your evidence for the guardian angel. That in the Acts passage, Acts 12, 14, and 15, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said it must be his angel. Okay? That's it. I mean, those are the only verses I know that would support the idea of a guardian angel. If that's enough for you, then go ahead and believe in it. But I'm saying that angels guard us. Whether we actually have an angel assigned for our whole life, that I do not know. Okay? Um, probably best to refrain from speculating. And I mean that in general about angels. I mean, please be sure you have biblical warrant before you go beyond because angels are fertile ground for speculation. Uh, there's something about angels that captures the imagination. Angels do not marry. Matthew 22:30 says that at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Therefore, they have no power for procreation. They can't have children. Uh, they just are spiritual beings. Okay? Angels are powerful. The power of angels. They have great power. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. They are very powerful. They are always, when they're depicted, they're frequently, I say frequently, but almost always depicted with awesome displays of power and glory. Their appearance is terrifying. Again, Daniel 10. This is the angel who came. By the way, this angel, I'm about to read the description, this angel is the one who couldn't get through for 21 days. Now read the description. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left, my faith, face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. That's a description of an angel. And he couldn't get through for 21 days. What does that tell you about the power of the demon that opposed him? I mean, just stop and think if God did not have his angels and just let the demons have at us, what it would be like. Uh, you wouldn't survive an instant. Uh, you would not survive. I mean, this is the power of the evil around us all the time. Immense. And the, the power also of the angels that are around us as well. Matthew 28, 1-4. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. I believe the guards were Roman soldiers. These were world-conquering Roman soldiers. The, the angel didn't need to bring a flaming sword. He just needed to show up. And the Romans were like dead men on the ground. Jesus said, Peter, put your sword back in its place because if I wanted to defeat the 600 Roman soldiers, I would call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal, the disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I told you in a sermon recently that uh, the Romans as a whole, Julius Caesar used 10 legions to conquer Gaul. 10 legions conquered that whole country. Jesus says, I have 12 legions of angels ready to go. 
and they would come and obey my every word. What do you think they'd do to these 600 Roman soldiers? Well, I think all he'd need is one to just show up. When he spoke his name, I am, they fell flat to the ground. This is the power of just the word of God. Angelic power. Uh, Luke 24, 4-6. When they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. And then my favorite description of an angel in the Bible, Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. Don't look at the pictures. Just keep listening to the scripture. <laughs> he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot in the land. Like boom, boom. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. This was no sissy angel. <laughs> sissy angels drive me crazy. I mean, look at this. What is this? <laughs> Why? Why? Babies and beautiful women. That's what it is. It's always babies and beautiful women. You know, when you go to those arts and crafts stores, tell me I'm wrong. It's always babies, mostly beautiful women. Mostly, it's these, you know what I'm talking about? Those things that the pictures and the art and the hair and the flowers and the. I think it's demonic because, you know, uh, maybe other. You probably have them at home. I need to be careful. I mean, if you like them, go ahead. But I guess what I'm saying is, is this biblical? This is not a biblical picture of angels. They're cute. Um, the babies are cute. The women, the Victorian pictures, they are beautiful. But you know, angels are warriors. They are powerful. They're terrifying. They're holy. They're championship wrestlers. Yeah, it's like, well, I tell you, that Revelation guy who's got one foot in the ocean and one foot on the land and just his head up in the cloud, I mean, that is an, that is an angel. That's a powerful angel. And when he speaks, it's like the, like the roar of a lion. And if you think about that angel in Re Revelation, if Jesus came and, sh and stood before him, he'd be on his face before Jesus. On his face, worshiping Jesus. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That's the incredible power of Christ. So, listen. If you've got these things at home, if you've got precious moments, if you've got all that, listen, enjoy it, that's fine. But just understand it has nothing to do with the Bible, that's all. Just think of it as art that just has no... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm getting into trouble here, so bail me out. I don't know. There's some struggle. There's war in heaven. It says in the book of Revelation, there's war in the heavenly realms. And so there's this battle going on and there's some force at, that they exert. And I don't know how it works. I just know that the angel intended something and wasn't able to do it because something opposed him. And so there was a struggle going on in the heavenly realms. I also, uh, in terms of, you ask, is it a battle unto death? Um, no, I don't think so, except for the fallen angels who are put, it says in Second Peter 2, in places, gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. A uh, demons have freedom now. They have their freedom. 
They move around and do things. Satan roams through the earth looking for trouble, basically. He's a roaming, restless creature. But there are some demons that don't have freedom anymore. They are confined and are waiting for hell. That's all. They're not there yet because the lake of fire, none of that's happened yet. The lake of fire is the second death. So they will die, so to speak, eternally. Does that make sense? Fallen angels die eternally in hell. Hell was made for them. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell was made for the angels. Well, how did we get into that? We joined the angels in their rebellion against God. That's what we did. And so we get their punishment. But the amazing thing is we get a redeemer and they don't. We get a redemption. We get an atonement and they get nothing. They get hell. They're just waiting for hell. That's all. So does that answer your question at all? I don't know. Well, you know, I have to. Right, I have to imagine that. I mean, you, you remember you ever see like movies or documentaries about World War II, and like Washington D.C., every, almost everybody walking down the streets wearing a uniform. You know, men and women, every, just the whole city seems to be in uniform. And and this is definitely in in London, you know, during the Blitz and all that, just the nations at war. You know what I'm saying? And because the nations at war, everybody's a warrior to some degree. You see what I'm saying? There's just there's a fight going on and, and England was fighting for their national survival and they knew it. They knew that they could easily come under Hitler's heel. And so it was all that they could do just to survive. I think that's what's going on in the heavenly realms. It's not that the survival is hanging in the balance, but they're at war and they know it. We just don't. We go about our business and we just forget that there's a war on. I mean, what would you think about it, about somebody during World War II that just has no interest in the war? I don't really follow it. I'm not that interested. You know, I don't read the pay. I just do my... It's like, what, what is the matter with you? Don't you understand the scope of what we're facing here with Hitler and with Tojo? With the, I mean, don't you understand what will happen if they win? And, and you'd think that person just out of touch with reality, wouldn't you? That's what we're like. <laughs> I mean, we don't, we're not at war the way the angels are. They're at war. And the devils are... They know they're at war. There's a war on. We're like, we take it or leave it. <laughs> we pray sometimes, sometimes we don't. So anyway, I think that's my thought, is that there's a battle going on all the time. Interestingly, God could end it today if he wanted to. He has that much power, and he chooses not to. He lets the angels kind of win, kind of lose. Kind of advance, kind of not. You see what I'm saying? Just like us. But in the end, Revelation 19, when he comes back and all the angels are arranged in heavenly array, and all of the armies on earth are arranged at Armageddon and there's that final climactic battle and he triumphs Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth that's all that's needed he just speaks and it's over that's a powerful thing I'm looking forward to seeing that that's exciting we're out of time so we'll, uh, next time we'll talk about such topics as the gender of angels that'll be interesting um, and other things um, also the angel of the Lord any questions or comments at all Okay. Let's close in prayer. Landis, would you do that for me, please? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.